All right, my name is Taylor Doe. I also go by Tito. Excited to be with you all today. And what I think when we talk about leadership and go to these leadership conferences and these leadership books we read is it talks about your leadership where you currently are in the seat that you're currently at. And what I'm more interested in is how you get into these positions, how you get into these spots of leadership. And so I wanna take you back to February 14th, 2016. Uh, there were some young men that I mentored and we we're out on the town spreading kindness one drive-through at a time. We would rent tuxedos and a limousine and we would pass out cards and chocolates and roses to ladies who were working at fast food restaurants on Valentine's Day. Their acts of kindness landed them on the front page of the Oklahoman. And if we have any big brothers in here, if you have a younger brother, if you make it on the newspaper, you always, and without exception, throw the bunny ears on your younger brother. <laughs> See, these guys were hilarious. Um, and I wanna give you a little background. Um, I met these guys uh, when they were eight years old. They're now 18. Uh, and we met while I was working in elementary schools in Northeast Oklahoma City, known as the East Side. And so a decade I moved over to the East Side to be closer to families, um, be closer to students, kind of be in the mix. And so families became like my family and these young guys became like my nephews. Uh, if, if you don't know, the East Side is predominantly black predominantly low income, and people who don't live on the east side typically classify the east side by all of its negative characteristics. Oftentimes when you see young black men on the news, it's followed by a mugshot. But on Valentine's Day, when you see a group of young black men, they're wearing tuxedos. And let me tell you about tuxedos. Because when you put on a tuxedo, you feel like a million bucks, right? The way you walk changes. You walk with your chest out. You're confident, the things you talk about change. You talk about business. In the back of the limousine, we're talking about money. And so, since I'd known these guys for a while, they knew what I did for work. They knew I had a good job. They knew that I made good money. I'd explain to them about uh, this thing where you could get paid to take time off, PTO. I explained to them about stocks. They were interested in, in stocks and being able to own some of the company. I talked to them about how I got to fly on planes and visit cities and get paid for that. In the back of that limousine that night, Demarion, dressed in his tuxedo, with all the confidence and ambition in the world, asked me a question. And he said, Tito, that's, that's my nickname. He said, Tito, I want one of those good jobs. How do I get one of those good jobs when I get older? And I froze. Luckily, Burger King saved me. That was our next spot. So we pull up, the guys grab their roses, chocolates, hop out, and they, they run in, and by the time they come out, conversation had changed. There we go. Conversation had changed, and we were on to the next place. And we were on to the next place. So I dropped them off later that night, and I was sitting in the back of that limousine, dressed in a tuxedo, not thinking about how incredibly single I was on Valentine's Day, but I was thinking about the American dream. Because what Damarion had asked me, he was asking me the formula to success. Like, how do I make good money and provide for my family and like achieve these dreams that I'd heard about? He was asking me about this idea called social mobility. He didn't know he was asking me that. 
But he was asking me and he was saying, and, and social mobility is just the ability to move up in the socioeconomic status, to do better than what your parents do. And so he was asking me that question. And so in the back of that limousine that night, Demarion's question became my question. How do people get the good jobs? How do people become in positions of leadership and authority and power in our city? And so I set out and started doing some research, some interviews. And here's who I interviewed. I interviewed um, the top 20% of earners in America. I interviewed, uh, this is gonna be your mid-level manager at an energy company. This is gonna be your successful business owner. This is gonna be a superintendent. Uh, all these kind of different good jobs, interviewed people with the good jobs. And I'm gonna show you a series of kind of segments, clips from some interviews I did. I want you to spot the key to success here, okay? The first one, Stacy was a school teacher and then worked hard and got a job in corporate America. I interviewed Rebecca. Rebecca worked hard to graduate from college and then got a good job at this PR firm. And then lastly, Trevor, he quit his job and then worked hard to build his own business. What's the common key to success in these stories that you're seeing? Hard work. That is required to be successful in America. That's a key ingredient to being successful in America. But throughout all of these interviews, the most fascinating and interesting commonality that showed up in all of these came in the most unlikely place. The keys to success were hidden behind this one phrase that everyone said in every interview. And then. You see, as we dug a little bit deeper, what Stacy didn't say um, and was kind of hidden behind this and then phrase was that one of her former students at the school, their parent worked at this company in corporate America. What Rebecca didn't say about getting a job, a good job at this PR firm, is that the guy she dated in college, his dad was a GM at this PR firm in Dallas. And what Trevor didn't say was that uh, when he quit his job, he did work hard, but his in-laws owned some rental property and let them stay rent-free for like 10 or 11 months as they were building their business. I call these and-then moments. And and-then moments are people. People who unlock resources and knowledge and opportunity. And I wanna dive a little bit deeper into and-then moments. My uh, grandpa is one of my superheroes, was, and I got to interview him before he passed away. I'd heard his story a thousand times, but I want to hear his and then moments. So I, I drove to Illinois, and um, we sat on the back porch and got to hear his story again. And so it went something like this. He said, Tay, that's my other nickname. He said, Tay, uh, we grew up poor in Fort Wayne, Indiana, went to elementary school, and then... In middle school, I started a paper route. And then in high school, I got a job at this kind of neighborhood grocery store. But I, and then I got a good job at the Tokheim gas pump factory, where they made gas pumps, and I got paid well that um, I could work in the summers and pay for my college uh, and not have to like work during school. 
So I said, okay, Grandpa, let's start with the first one. How did you, how did you get a bike to start your first paper out? He said, well, now that I think about it, my uncle gave me my first bike. And then I saved up, and, I, and then I bought this red Schwinn, and he would always talk about this special bike. Okay, Grandpa, well, how'd you get a job at, this, um, at the grocery store? He said, well, it was, it was nothing big. It was a neighborhood grocery store. The owner just hired neighborhood kids to put coupons on, on doors, and we didn't make that much money. Okay, cool. Well, I want to know the good job. Like, I drove to Illinois to find out about the good job at the gas pump factory. He said, well, Tay, the hiring manager was the next door neighbor. And we didn't have enough car, well, we didn't have enough money for a car, so he took me to and from work. So I did some more research, and I found the 1940 census, and I found the name of my grandpa's next door neighbor, Ray Simmons. I had never heard this man's name my entire life, and I've heard my grandpa's story hundreds of times. Ray Simmons unlocked this opportunity for my grandpa. I don't think he was like intentionally like leaving out this, this detail at all. I just think it's been the way that we've been told or crafted to tell our stories. We leave out these important details. And so um, my research continued to show that uh, relationships unlock the good opportunities in America. And so then it led me to ask my next question. What happens when you don't have access to these types of relationships? So I did a little bit more digging, a little more Googling, and I found out that because of exclusionary housing practices known as redlining, no black people could live in my grandpa's neighborhood. So I'm thinking about Damarion, I'm thinking about his great-grandfather, I'm thinking that if he lived in Fort Wayne, Indiana by chance back then, no matter how much hard work that man put in, he couldn't have got that opportunity because he didn't live next to Ray Simmons. My grandpa had a key to unlock an opportunity, and that key's name was Ray Simmons. So you might be sitting here and you're like, bro, that is 70 years ago, <laughs> okay? Like 2022, come on. And so I was like, all right, I'm getting back into my research. Let me get back to the 21st century. I'm going to continue to do my research. And I was interviewing people um, about and kept hearing this idea of locked opportunities. So I want to take you back to Rebecca. Remember her? She got a job at the PR firm because of her boyfriend's dad. Well, she later told the story in that interview, and she was saying, um, we were sitting around the table at lunch. It was just the interns. There were 10 of us. And um, this girl next to me slipped up and said that her dad worked with Brandon, and that's how she got the job. And then another intern at the table said, well, I went to class with Catherine, and that's kind of how I got in. Another intern, another intern. They went around, and all 10 interns got this internship through a relationship. What she later found out was that they do not hire anyone into the company who does not go through the internship process. That is a locked opportunity if you don't know someone. I did another interview I want to share about. I interviewed a business owner. Their business does $100 plus million in revenue. I was interviewing this executive. He was telling me his and ends. I said, hey, man, can I interview your employees about how they got into your company? 
And he was like, Taylor, you, you can interview them. I will save you a lot of time. They had about 70, 80 employees. 100% of our employees knew someone in our company before they worked here. That's a locked opportunity. Time and time again, these interviews kept showing that opportunity unlocks relationships. Here's the deal. Everyone in America faces locked doors. Every single person I interviewed, everyone in here faces locked doors. But the locked doors isn't the problem. It's how many keys you have to get through these locked doors. And what I realized is that people in America are born with drastically different amounts of keys. When I uh, moved to the east side and um, noticed how few keys people have, few keys like Demarion had in his pocket, it was really jarring to see the number of keys that I was born with. And that was being in proximity with Demarion because he reminded me of myself. He was fun, he was energetic, he's bouncing off the walls, he's hardworking, all these things. And I didn't see the connections he needed to get to that next level, to achieve the dreams that I, I continue to hear him tell me about. Social scientists call this economic connectedness. It's kind of the, this idea that there's a connectedness between the rich and the poor. And the more connection that happens, the greater outcomes are for people. Now, that's, that's not really groundbreaking, but this is groundbreaking research that literally came out two weeks ago by Raj Chetty. He's a, he's a social scientist at Harvard. And what people have been saying for a long time, this huge data set shows us that it's true, that relational connections have impact on where people get. What um, is also disheartening is that we still live in a very segregated society uh, among economics and by race. And so the people with lots of keys live around and are friends with people with lots of keys. And people who have few keys are around people and live around people with few keys. And so what we've been told to believe in America is kind of this idea of the zero-sum game. Right, so imagine me holding a bowl of keys. And a zero-sum game says, if I give this key away, I'm one key down. And if I give too many of these keys away, like I could actually get to zero if I gave all my keys away. But it's the exact opposite. Opportunity uh, in America is compounding. So as you step into a new job and you work with 150 people, you have 150 new keys in your bowl. As you join the country club, new keys. As your kid starts competitive cheerleading and you're sitting in the stands with other parents, new keys. As you join a new church and a new small group, new keys. So as you give out keys, you're getting more keys as you're moving into new places. And so I wanna uh, kinda end with this. So what if we just took the, the next first step? I was doing an and then moments training for an executive uh, board, executive, executive group at a big insurance company. And then the last session of the day, I asked if anyone was willing to share their and then moments. It seemed like everyone was frozen in their seats. Someone uh, had the courage and stood up and shared their and then moment. 
their and then moments, and then another one, and another one, and another one. We kept going, and I had to, I had to shut it down. It was, it was an and then avalanche was happening in the room. Okay, so we're running out of time. I'm like, let me give the CEO the last word. So I give the CEO the last word. He stands up, and he says, Taylor, I've been reflecting on the people who, like my and then moments, and I've been reflecting on these people who unlocked opportunity for me. And I haven't thought of their names in a very, very long time, but what it's making me do is want to unlock opportunities for other people who need them. I wanna be an and then moment for someone else. Today, I, well, first, that level of vulnerability, as you saw in that room, fostered other vulnerability. That's why we kept seeing people share their moments. And so today I wanna to be the first one to start the and then avalanche in this room. My name's Taylor Doe. I grew up in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, and then I went to the University of Oklahoma, and then I worked at Sandridge Energy, sorry. And then I started a tech company with my brother. But what I didn't say was my parents could afford for me to go to OU. While I was there, I met a guy named Daniel whose mom was senior vice president at Sandridge Energy. She saw some of the work I was doing and made an introduction. That turned into an internship, which turned into a full-time job doing community outreach and being on the east side of Oklahoma City in schools and getting paid to be a youth pastor but with a corporate America job. It was the best setup ever. And so because I've been given so many opportunities, I want to give generously. And so I want to leave us with two things today. The first challenge is to be generous with your keys. I can promise you, you are not going to run out of keys. The twofold to that is, I want you to be generous with your keys who have, with people who have historically been left out. You have to be intentional about that because we're already giving keys to people in our circles. The second, take time to unpack your story and be generous with your full story. I want you to share your and then moments when you get a chance, when you're on podcasts, when you're speaking with friends, when you're at the bar talking about this big deal and these successful things happening. I want you to share the tiny details that made it happen. And so to wrap up, and then moments have the power to change companies, change organizations, and change our city. And more people will thrive because your generosity in storytelling and in the doors that you unlock. You can keep that mic. Um, so we have just a few more minutes. I want to wrap up with a few thoughts um, that come to mind as they shared. One, I'll start with Donita and kind of work backwards. Uh, something that I didn't talk about but is a part of and then moments is practice reps. We get uh, courage and we get these practice reps in these environments that we're not usually around and that's what she's talking about with her students. We get more comfortable, we get more courage, we get more, we've seen this before, um, when we're more comfortable, we do well in higher stress situations. So when you get to that job interview, oh, I've been around, I've been here before, I'm more comfortable. The other thing I wanna kind of wrap up on and then I'll, I would love to hear your brief thoughts is uh, something that kept coming up in these interviews um, that I also didn't talk about was shame. And I wanna do more research on this because what kind of Justin talk about, talked about a little bit and hinted at was there's a shame of how you get to where you're at that kind of says to you, you're not good enough, 
or there's this imposter syndrome there. So, so don't say anything because you might be exposed. Or if you say something, they're not going to meet you back with that same vulnerability. And time and time again, I kind of heard that little like thing of shame pop up. And that was why the, uh, the, my former classmate at OU who got the PR job, she, she said that straight out in her interview. And I was like, wow. She was like, I was ashamed of my boyfriend's dad who got the job. And so I didn't say anything. And so that was kind of what Justin was feeling in a very real way at this lunch table with this guy. It's like, how'd you get here? You're like, your shame just starts going off. And so I want, and, and I know Cultivate and why I love this is, this is a shame-free zone. And so what we're inviting you to do today and throughout the next few weeks is be vulnerable with one another, not have that shame that's gonna tell you, don't say that quite yet, but like I said, if you share in vulnerability, the hope is that you're going to be met in vulnerability, and we see it time and time again. So I'd love to kind of open it up. We have about four to five minutes.